We gather today as God's people before God in order to know God better. As a Bible-believing church, we actively pursue a growing knowledge of who God is and a growing knowledge of His revealed will for our lives. What does He want of me? Who is He? In that pursuit, we learn fairly quickly that God is holy and that He calls us to live holy lives. We realize that the holiness of God and His people is a fundamental and pervasive emphasis of the Holy Scriptures. And yet, as familiar as we are with the theme of holiness, we continue to struggle along three lines. Will you agree with me? I think, first of all, that we have something of a fuzzy definition of holiness. We generally conceive of its meaning, but we're a bit unclear about what holiness really is. Secondly, a dull perception of God's holiness. We're not affected as we should be by the sense of the holiness of God. Thirdly, a weak display of holiness in our lives. We are unholy people, often, in too many ways. I've spent considerable time reading on the topic of holiness from systematic theology books, lexical studies on the meaning of the word, books on the Christian life. There's a lot said about holiness in the Christian's walk. And as I have read, one theme that continues to surface is this. You see it over and over again, particularly in the more popular literature, the literature that's working with our life as a Christian and how to grow and how to demonstrate holiness. One thing that continues to surface is that Bible-believing Christians are very familiar with the concept of holiness, but struggle being holy people. I take J.C. Ryle, 19th century leader among conservative Anglicans, wrote in 1879, takes us back a ways, he said this, the older I grow the more I am convinced that real practical holiness does not receive the attention it deserves. And that there is a most painfully low standard of living among many high professors of religion in the land. Religious people, very aware of the holiness of God and His call of holiness upon our lives, yet a painfully low standard of living. Let's move to the next century. Jerry Bridges has served the Lord for over 50 years across the second half of the 20th century, ministering with the worldwide discipleship organization Navigators. Now in his mid-80s, Bridges was recently asked to identify the greatest need in the church today. Quote, there are so many. However, if I had to pick one, I would say the most fundamental need is an ever-growing awareness of the holiness of God. The number one need. Let's move to this century. A recent blog post, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, a young, conservative, 21st century minister, said this, I have a growing concern that younger evangelicals do not take seriously the Bible's call to personal holiness. We are too at peace with worldliness in our homes, too at ease with sin in our lives, too content with spiritual immaturity in our churches. I just pick out these three voices. We have a man here who says, I'm old, in 1879. We have another man now in his 80s who has ministered through much of the 20th century. And here, a young pastor who's just beginning his ministry. All saying the same thing. Across the centuries, from generation to generation, there has been a persistent conviction That grasping the holiness of God and pursuing holiness in our lives is a glaring need in the church and a matter of utmost necessity. 
So to this end, we begin a brief series of sermons on the doctrine of the holiness of God and our call to it. This series is designed as an assault against our fuzzy definitions of what holiness is. Our dull perception of God's holiness has been a battle in my soul here this morning as we sang of that holiness to perceive it, to sense it. I've been praying, I've been seeking God's help to be aware of His holiness and understanding what it really is and then our weak display of personal holiness as His children. We desperately need to understand this doctrine of holiness. We need to come to terms with it, not because it's unfamiliar. We're very familiar with this concept. You can't read the Bible at all without coming into contact with the doctrine of the holiness of God. But we desperately need to understand it better, to be affected by it more, and to live it out in our lives. And I don't think anyone would differ who knows the Lord. So I invite you to hear this familiar emphasis with fresh ears, with tender hearts to consider the holiness of God. I'd like to start this series by looking at the earliest strains of revelation concerning God's holiness. Where would you start? We might look for the first reference to the word holiness. But before we even do that, I think that it's important, and we'll take a little bit of time here, but to consider what does holiness mean? But what I'm kind of doing is, is going to back into the beginning, if that makes sense. To look at holiness as a theme in all of Scripture, so that armed with that, we can begin walking into the Bible armed with this knowledge of holiness. Now, uh, that, that's, that's a different approach than we might want to take. It's not a systematic approach, but I think it's useful to us here. <clears throat> Rather than going through and combing through every reference to holiness and starting with its first use, we'll try to get a sense of the definition of this word. We start with the Hebrew word, kadosh. Uh, Its primal meaning of this word is separateness, or that which is utterly unique. The translation that we might find in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, as we think of the word kadosh, is holiness, apartness, sacredness, hallowedness. Now there's a sense of that in everyone's life. I think even the most rigid atheist has some sense of sacred places, of sacred emphases, of something that is set apart and hallowed. They may not buy it, not not believe it, but... There's some sense of that virtually for all of us. And the word is translated in these various ways, but particularly with the word, uh, translated with the English word holiness. When we think of the theology of it, that is, what does this word holiness have to do with God and the revelation of God in Scripture, there is no other title that is more often ascribed to God in Scripture than the Holy One. Now we think very warmly of God as our Savior, and we should, but when we think of references to God, titles given to God, the Holy One appears more than anything else. Now I don't think we know God by statistical averages, but it says something to us that this phrase is used over and again of our Lord. God's holiness is His complete otherness, His innate transcendence in relationship to all of creation. His otherness, separateness, innate transcendence. That is, within Himself there is something wholly other than anything else that we know. Having completely, having completely devastated the false gods of Egypt. God is worshipped by Moses in Exodus 15 verse 11 when He says this, Who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness? There it is. Do you hear it? Who is like you? The answer, of course, is no one. He is majestic in holiness. So we ask this, what is the opposite of holiness? The opposite of holiness is the Hebrew word whole. Not the English word, but a, very, a Hebrew word, whole, meaning profane 
or common. Something that is profane may be evil. And I think many people would say the opposite of holiness is sinfulness. Not necessarily, and not though it can be, that's not often the case. Whole, the opposite, is profane or common. We often think of what is profane as evil, but it may refer to something that is merely common. Let's take something very whole. And that might be a McDonald's hamburger. That is common. And we might not have a problem with saying that is profane, right? But it's been digested by billions, apparently, even though the signs have been taken down. But imagine that you go to a unique restaurant. You're thinking McDonald's hamburger, common. But you go to another restaurant and you find you stumble on this restaurant and it serves a hamburger that is utterly delectable. You've never tasted any hamburger, anything like this before. It's wonderful, and you go and you describe it to a friend, right? You're going to find somebody and tell them about this hamburger. And you say what? There is nothing like it. It is out of this world. Now, what have you said? In a manner of speaking, you have said it's a holy hamburger. But when the Bible speaks of God as holy it means there is absolutely nothing like Him in the universe. Because this delectable, holy hamburger, there is something else like it. It's beef, after all. But when it comes to God's holiness, we take this concept of uniqueness, separateness, that which is uncommon, differentiated from the profane. Here we're dealing with a God who is totally holy, God is holy means that He is absolutely, incomparably, transcendently distinct from all creation. We need to just let that wash down upon us, to consider that in its depths. God is holy. His uniqueness is highlighted by His total freedom of evil. So it certainly does have that moral component. And it is displayed in God's perfect conformity to the standards of His own divine nature. God is, to say it this way, God is holy is to say that God is perfectly consistent with God. And God is the standard of absolute perfection of being. Never does He get out of sync with Himself in His perfections. And this is why we are so unholy. We are so profane. We are so common. Because we walk away from this distinctive apartness of God over and over again. We are indeed born into profaneness by our mere humanity. Stretching just a bit further, there is what we might call then transferable holiness, or I've thought of maybe perhaps a better statement, a derivative holiness. In one sense, only God is holy. However, we're aware of this as Bible readers, the word holy, kadosh, can be applied to anything that is separated from common use and set apart or consecrated to the service of God. I don't know, I'm not feeling particularly hungry today, but here I go with another food illustration. But this happens in our house. There's times I open the fridge and say, wow, have I hit it. There is this beautiful dessert sitting in the fridge, and it's got my name all over it. And Beth will say, don't touch that. Why? It's dedicated to something else. It's not common for common usage, which would be to fill my belly with it. It's consecrated to hospitality. There's an event at church coming up this week. We're having someone over to eat something like that. It's been devoted to that. It's off limits. It's not for common use. Now, I've just used that as a, as a simple illustration from our life. Heighten it somewhat, and that's how the word is used often in the Bible. You have holy spoons, you have holy bowls, you have holy altars, you have holy tents, you have holy spaces, you have holy animal sacrifices, you have holy days and seasons, you have holy people such as priests. 
And you could fill in the ideas there of all the things that are called holy in the Old Testament. It's not because the bull is morally good. It's because the bull is dedicated to the worship of God in the tabernacle, a God who is only good. But in that sense, it's holy. Why are they holy? Because they are devoted to the service of God. Now, this stretches us, and here's where we need to get our sense of holiness set right. Do you know that the Old Testament speaks of pagan temple prostitutes as holy ones? You go, well, if I was thinking of somebody that's not holy, it would be a prostitute. That's somebody that's very profane. But think of it. These temple prostitutes were devoted through their sexual activity to the God that they served. And so in that sense, this very same word is used of them. They were holy ones. Not holy in the sense that we consider holy, but in the sense that they were devoted and consecrated to God. God with a small g and the adulterous, lecherous gods that they worshipped. So when you worship such a god and you devote yourself to that god, you commit acts of horrible sexual immorality. But when you are devoted to the holy God of Scripture, the one unique God of purity, you pursue sexual purity because you're devoted to Him. It is important to fix our, this definition then in our minds, this separateness, this uniqueness, this otherness, this transcendence of God as we understand the, the theme of holiness in Scripture. So with that, enabled in that way, we come into Scripture looking not merely for the word holy, but we come into Scripture looking for this sense of God's distinctness. And there we find indeed the very first verse of the Bible speaks to us of His holiness. Genesis chapter 1, and we will spend some time here in these first chapters of Genesis, so you may have the, the verse memorized. But considering it under this theme of holiness, in Genesis 1.1, the Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This verse reveals God's separateness from creation. We see His holiness all over this verse. God exists before the universe. He's not a product of it. God creates out of nothing, speaking the universe into existence. He does not, think of this, He does not fashion it from matter that existed eternally with Him. He speaks it into existence out of nothing. So Genesis 1.1 announces at the outset of Scripture the otherness of God, that He is wholly distinct from His creation. He is the uncreated, eternal, unmoved mover and maker of all that is. As Francis Schaeffer observed, the atheistic evolutionist dismisses the holiness of God by writing Him out of the script. Matter is everything. There is no transcendent God. Feel free to pray to whatever you want to pray to if you choose to, but this has nothing to do with the universe that we see. There is no God, says the materialist. On the other hand, mysticism also denies the holiness of God by saying that all is divine spirit. The divine is largely indistinguishable from creation. We take, for instance, also the polytheist who dismisses God's holiness by saying that He is one among many other gods. Every philosophy, every religion, every orientation of life, you will be grappling with Genesis 1.1. And all false religions and philosophies will say God is not unique. He's like something else. Or His uniqueness is denigrated by the simple idea that He isn't. The holiness of God, His transcendent otherness from creation, is boldly announced 
in this first verse of Scripture. This theme is then further sounded in the second chapter of Genesis. After the six days of creation described in chapter 1, we come to chapter 2 and God's holiness. Not in creation here, but now as we see in the Sabbath. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. God finishes His creative work. He rests on day seven. Here's the idea. The seventh day is the first day in a string on which He creates nothing. The point is not that God rests from fatigue, but that He ceases to create. He's not worn out. But he's not creating anymore, not on this seventh day. God continues to this day to sustain his creation. Colossians 1 and verse 17. Since the sixth day of the process, since the sixth day, the processes of the universe include conservation and due to sin, disintegration. This world is falling apart. There's conservation of what was made, there's no recreation. There's no new creation in this world. The virtually infinite number of creative innovations that went into the creative week ended on day six. So God does not create on day seven, but He does act decisively. Verse three. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. He made it what? He made it kadosh. He made it holy. God hallows the day on which He creates nothing. He makes the seventh day holy. Now notice the phrase in verse 3. Because... He makes the seventh day holy because on it God rested from all His work. He makes this day holy because on it He created nothing. On this day, He begins His sustaining work. It is no accident that God hallows the day on which He rests. What would have happened if God had hallowed the sixth day? We probably would worship the pinnacle of that day, man. But he hallows the seventh day to help us understand that we are to worship God alone. Not man, not creation. Do you see this? The holy day, the set-apart day, the special day is the day on which nothing is created. It's just God sustaining That day is the holy day. Isaiah 58 and verse 14 claims that God created the Sabbath to teach man, I quote, to take delight in the Lord rather than in profane pleasures. Now there's a reason we gather on this first day of the week and not on the Sabbath in worship. As Revelation continues, we're pointed that way and directed that way because of Christ's victory over sin and death. And indeed, in a sense then, the first day, considering Christ's resurrection, we live in the rest that comes from that work. But here, as we come into Genesis, we have the Sabbath day, the day of rest in God. As Augustine put it, O God, our hearts are created for Thee, and we are restless until we find rest in Thee. God sanctified and hallowed a day to say you will find rest only in Me, not in this creation. There is joy, there is glory, there is delight, there is distinctiveness in Me alone that you will never find in the things of this earth. I am holy, and this day is holy. Do you know such rest in your Creator? Do you know that rest? Does your soul find delight in God alone? 
This is not to say that we find no delight in creation. It's not, it's not saying that, that that's wrong. It's to say that our delight in creation hinges on our worship of God, not our worship of God on creation. Through sin, through our wrong orientations, we seek to find delight in things of this earth without God. In fact, we just really hope God takes a vacation, moves away, and lets me do what I want to do. But the Sabbath day was created for us to learn through biblical revelation that we must delight in God above all creation. Indeed, there is a delight there that creation cannot produce. So any delight that we find in the things of this world that does not acknowledge the transcendent delight in God alone is an idolatrous love and it's killing you. It's killing me. What do you love? What do you enjoy? In what do you find delight in this world? If that worldly delight does not rest in the holiness of God as creator, sustainer, and the ultimate delight of your soul, that worldly delight is an idol. And that idol will dampen the pursuit of holiness in your life and it will steal away your joy and your strength. Is your soul resting in God alone? The major hindrance to seeing God in all of His uniqueness is our temptation to sin, to walk away from who He is and His essence. And it is our replacement of the one unique God with the idols of this world, with the false and small gods of the things of this space and time. The only answer to this is reconciliation with God who is alone, holy, in the ultimate sense. And that reconciliation comes, as Scripture teaches, through an understanding of Jesus' death, that He dies to pay the penalty of our sin, our rebellion against the holiness of God. He pays the penalty of that in our separation from God and bears that separation in His body on the cross to pay that physical price of sin in His death. In the resurrection of Jesus, God places His stamp of approval on all that is accomplished. And in that life now, reconciled to God, we can come into the presence of the holy, unique God with a renewed love, with a born-again relationship. Are you at rest in God? I tell you this as others have through the centuries and as Scripture proclaims again and again, there is no rest in this world apart from the Holy God. You must find your rest in Him. We see God's holiness in creation and we see His holiness in the Sabbath. As we come to the third chapter of Genesis, we see His holiness in the fall. In sin, Genesis 3, verse 1, look for the holiness of God. The absolute, unique separateness of God. His distinctiveness, His transcendent uniqueness. Look for it here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, obviously speaking is Satan, through this serpent, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Seriously? Why would God say that? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now you're, you're wrong about that. He didn't say we couldn't eat from the trees of the garden. But God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. God doesn't know what he's talking about. In fact, he's lying to you. You won't die. You can mess with sin. It won't hurt you. You can decide for yourself and get outside of what God's command says, and it's just fine. It didn't hurt you at all. 
Here's the real deal, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now I take that phrase, knowing good and evil. He's not merely saying here, I don't think you will have insight to distinguish between good and evil, but he's saying rather, Eve, you will have the prospect now of determining right and wrong for yourself. God's knowing good and evil was only seen by Eve in one sense. God said, don't eat from that tree. He's determining what's good and what's wrong. But if you'll eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. And you'll be able to figure out what's right for you and what's wrong for you and do what you want to do. You'll be just like God. This is a full-scale attack on the holiness of God. You'll be like Him. He won't be unique. He won't be the only lawgiver. Here's the good deal. And the good stuff on the side here is you actually can take His part and be a rival God determining what's right and wrong for you. You'll lay out what is good and evil. So, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They had an awareness of their sin and their corruption, of their depravity now in the presence of God, and they hid. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and, the wife, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?" And he said, "I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself." This is shame. This is a sense of violating the will of a holy God. Notice what happens. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This isn't God going, what happened here? I'm not really sure. This is the parent who sees the cookie crumbs all over the kid's mouth and said, have you eaten a cookie? He knows exactly what Adam's done. But notice what Adam says in light of the holiness of God. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. What's he doing there? Yeah, I ate. But you put this woman with me. What, Adam, what, what Eve does is seek to raise herself up to the position of God and share His place as one who determines what is right and wrong for herself. What Adam now does is take God and yank Him down to His level and say, yes, I ate, but you put this woman with me. You're down here with me. You're culpable too. One of the most merciful things that we find in this passage is certainly God looking for Adam and Eve among the trees, but it's also verse 13 that the Lord now speaks to the woman and doesn't strike Adam dead on the spot. Just as Adam did not lead and protect his wife, in like manner God had failed to protect Adam as Adam sees it. And God is brought down from His holiness. The moral devastation that spewed from this rebellion continues to haunt our world to this day. Every sin, every decision to trust our own judgment and disregard God's Word 
is an equally wicked assault against the holiness of God. Like Adam and Eve, we seek to rival God. We think we can flirt with sin. Indeed, we think we can determine for ourselves what's the best way. This is what's right. This is what's wrong for me. And what we do in those moments, those moments of insanity or those moments of a bent of lifestyle, in those moments we yank God down in His holiness. We denigrate it. We work against it. And when we sin, we are, not, are we not quick also to blame circumstances and other people? Which is a way to blame God Himself. Uh, my, if I didn't grow up in that home, these things wouldn't be happening. If it wasn't for what He did, it wasn't what she said, if it wasn't for this situation, if these circumstances hadn't come together in this way, We excuse ourselves because of the circumstances, knowing all the time that those circumstances are ordained by a sovereign God. And we bring God down out of His realm of holiness into our little world of our own making. All of it is a despising of God's holiness. If you'll work with me one further step, and that is God's holiness and the exodus from Egypt. As we come to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, the next book will work just for a few moments longer. But Exodus 3, the people of Israel have now been enslaved in Egypt, and God meets with Moses in the desert. Remember this? God says, chapter 3 of Exodus, He speaks to Moses as Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. In verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? Why it's not consumed? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called to Moses out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's holy ground. That desert floor let me assure you, was one ugly stretch of earth. But that spot of ground was now holy. Not because Moses was there, not because of how that ground looked, but because of the presence of God objectified in that place made this holy ground. This was hallowed, distinctive space at the moment. And as the text unfolds, God calls Moses to approach Pharaoh and demand that the most powerful man on the planet with the most powerful army on the earth would let one of the smallest, poorest, most humble nations of unarmed slaves leave Egypt. I am, verse 6, he says, the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, And Moses hides his face for he was afraid to look at God in this holy place and he will be even more afraid as he receives the call of God. Chapter 5, verse 1. After Moses and Aaron went and they said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Moses, through God's counsel and nurture, overcomes this fear stands now before Pharaoh, but notice what Pharaoh says. And you can't miss, the holiness theme is just raging here. He says, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. 
and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is he? He's unknown. Which is to say he's absolutely unimportant. Look what he's gotten, where he's gotten you guys. I mean, you just, you're a whole nation of slaves. I worship more powerful gods. Who's the Lord? I don't know who this God is. Well, Pharaoh suffers greatly for that question. And a series of plagues comes upon Egypt that is aimed right at the gods of Egypt. If you study the gods of Egypt, you see that God is very clearly taking what people think is God, what the gods are, and He devastates Egypt, delivering Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea. And on the other side, after Egypt's army has been drowned in the sea, Moses rejoices in God's deliverance. And among other things, he sees this deliverance as an evidence of God's holiness. Chapter 15 and verse 11. All that God has done to show Himself distinct and unique, the only true and living God over the false gods of Egypt, Moses sings this song. I just look at verse 11 of chapter 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Is God morally pure? Yes, in His distinctiveness, He is pure to the core, and that distinguishes Him from all else. But here, His distinctiveness is far more than simply His purity, as important as that is. He is a God unlike all other gods. He is majestic in His holiness. And that's why Moses says, Who is like you? The answer, no one. God proved His holiness by delivering the Israelites from slavery. Only He could have brought this weak, small nation out of the most powerful nation on the planet, preserving the slaves from loss of life. There were people that died of natural causes. There were no people that died at the hand of Pharaoh's army. Only God could do that. And next week, I'd like to trace this theme further into the Old Testament as we gain a fuller sense of God's holiness and His call in our lives. But today, we start with definition. I've spent a lot of time on that definition. We'll continue to return to it over the weeks, Lord willing. We've looked here at the earliest evidences of God's holiness on the pages of Scripture. In creation, in the establishment of the Sabbath, we see it in the deliverance of the Israelites. We see it in the fall, in a negative sense, and in the deliverance of the Israelites. But I think even just this short journey in, we've traveled sufficiently far to stake this conviction. God alone is God. Transcendently distinct from all creation, the one true and living God who dwells in perfect holiness. This is the God who is revealed in Scripture. In utter purity, He always acts according to His perfect nature. He is perfectly pure, perfectly consistent with His perfect essence. So let me talk briefly just about two responses, very simply. I don't think we can consider these truths and not be filled with awe, to be awed in the presence of God. How naturally we are awed with the things of this world and awed by what we see sometimes in the mirror. We're impressed with ourselves. When we come to see the holiness of God, we have to be awed like nothing else. Problem is, are you with me? I don't think we're moved. We're not moved the way that we should be. I know that within my soul, I put these ideas together. I see the holiness of God. It's a beautiful concept. But are we moved by it? Are we changed by it? 
When we fail to see God as holy, we quickly distrust His purposes, we question His wisdom, we dismiss His power, we devalue His love, and we say He's like the other gods of this world. Good at times, not a full package. I think the antidote in part, the the solution in part, is what we're doing here today. We gather together for worship. I think we must do this privately and we must do this corporately to come together to consider the person of God. To turn our orientation to see His holiness from a fresh light. I don't know that apart from this gathering in worship today that we would concentrate this long on the theme of God's holiness. And so I come with thanksgiving for this opportunity to stop and to see my life in light of the holiness of God. And in public as well as in private, to earnestly endeavor to learn to revel in His uniqueness. To know that He's wholly other from this world. How quickly we earnestly can praise a hamburger but how dull and slow our hearts to truly, zealously praise God. Now, where were you this morning? Were you fighting with thoughts outside of here? Were you working on even caring? Was your heart dull and lethargic? We have to know that these ideas, that these responses are totally inappropriate not because of who we are as a church but because of the god that we worship we should be filled with awe the fact that we're not is an evidence of a need for great change secondly then and i say this negatively but i think i can say it more quickly we must work not to domesticate god It's the perfect storm. Our hard hearts fail to rightly perceive the holiness of God, and then we begin to domesticate God, to put Him in a box of our own construction. God's supposed to work like this. Knowing God will help me live a better life. I'll come to church, I'll read the Bible, I'll try to gain some ideas about how to... Because if I I know God, I'll live a better life. If I know God, He'll answer my prayers. He will bring comfort in times of trial and secure my eternal future. I mean, what's not to like about that? And subtly, what can happen is like Adam and Eve, we seek to use God as a common domesticated force. God, here's your box. Get in it. Stay in it. Do what I want you to do, and everything will be fine. Not one of us would probably ever say such a thing out loud, or even know we're saying it. But this is the danger in the presence of a holy God, to domesticate God, to make Him what you want Him to be, and not to know Him for who He truly is. You see, we're not in the driver's seat here, telling God who He's got to be. He's telling us who He is. And he's saying with a harsh tone, deal with it. Knowing that he's saying that with the most gracious and loving way possible because in his person are depths of joy and gladness and hope and life like we can never find anywhere else. He's not asking us to define him. He's saying, here's who I am. Come to know me in all of my holiness and your heart will sing. In our hearts, God can become whole, profane, not kadosh or holy. The result is that God inspires no awe and we meet His holiness with a yawn, just like the world does, just like those who don't know Him. And so let us go from here. Say we faced a different God today. Exodus 15 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Or as was read earlier in Psalm 99, Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Why do we worship 
Why do we fall on our faces before Him in awe? Because, says the psalmist, He is holy. This is our God. Let's come before Him in prayer. Father, we confess our sin. We confess that we do not see You for who You are. We ask for Your forgiveness. We ask that Your faithfulness will be displayed in the way that You deal with us in in our sin. May You be merciful and help us to see. And I, I just pray for this assembly for my own heart that we will come to terms with Your holiness like we never have before. I plead that the Spirit of God would come even now and be teaching and instructing. I ask that by Your Spirit we might discern better this reality. And I ask that as You give us life and opportunity that will come in these weeks ahead and continue to deepen in our knowledge of who You are and Your holiness. It's uncomfortable. We don't come here today to feel good about ourselves and to be happy that You're in the box of our making. When we think of you as wholly other and wholly distinct, we're fearful because we don't know how to put you in a category. In fact, we can't. But I pray, Father, that as you help us and bend to us to give us analogies to help us understand, I pray that we'd come to you as our holy God and as our Father, as our Savior, as our Lord. Anyone who knows not Christ as Savior, we pray that you'll draw them to yourself today, that they will come to you, turning from their sin and trusting Christ. For those of us that have been born again, Father, forgive us of our unholiness and teach us to walk in faithfulness to you. We exalt your name, for you are holy. And it is because of the work of Jesus that we can pray this and come before your holy throne. And so it is through his name, because of his work of grace on the cross, that we pray before you. Amen.